gospel, excuse me, through the, the letter of James, uh, the last uh, year or so. If you've been with us, we kind of jump into it on and off whenever we take a break from the main series. Today we're in James chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. And as we're thinking about Passion Week, we call this week that we're entering into here Passion Week. That is the week of Christ's suffering. Uh, passion refers to his suffering. We remember this this week when he was betrayed, uh, even by his own closest followers, his own closest friends, when he was insulted, when he was beaten, and ultimately when he was murdered. And we remember not only how he was treated, but how he responded in those situations. His response is particularly uh, Noteworthy. All the way back in Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years or so before Christ, he looks forward to the coming Messiah and he says about him, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus's response in the face of total injustice was surprisingly silence. (laughs) He didn't argue back. Isaiah looks forward to this and marvels. And if you read the accounts of Jesus's, uh, of him being put on trial, of him being judged before all those around, basically, both religious leaders and legal leaders, governmental leaders, again and again, we see this, this repeated So he's taken before Herod. It says he doesn't even answer Herod's questions. (laughs) He just won't say anything. And after one very simple interaction with Pilate, again, he's silent. And Mark records in Mark 15, Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed because, of course, the governor, Pilate, knew. (laughs) He knew how people responded when their life was on the line. Sentence is about to be passed. Don't you want to defend yourself? Don't you want to kind of spread the blame around? Hey, it's not my fault. I don't deserve this. Someone else did it. Anything to avoid the death penalty. At that moment, no one cares if they look like they're flailing. And yet, he didn't. And years later, in his, in his letter to the churches, Peter recounts this and, and continues to, this continues to resonate with him and be surprising to him. And so he writes to these churches in 1 Peter 2, These reflections, he says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here's a perfectly righteous man. His case is airtight. He can argue it as long as he wants. When he was reviled, Peter says, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I mean, this stuck with the eyewitnesses. They just couldn't get past it. Here was a man who had every right to be freed, to be set up as, as a leader, and instead, when he's judged unjustly, he won't talk back. He won't speak up in defense. He does not revile in return for the insults that come his way. And James is going to teach us something very similar today. He gives a command to the Christians whom he's writing to. 
not to speak evil against their fellow Christians. Let me read this for you. James chapter 4, just two verses. James 4, it's up here on the screen if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you. Starting in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Christians of all people should be free of slander. Our methods of communication should match our message, namely mercy. And James is going to give three reasons here why Christians must not speak against their brothers and sisters. First, because these are your fellow Christians. Secondly, because this is God's, this is like condemning God's law when you pass judgment on someone else. And he says, because only God is a worthy judge. We're going to look at these three in detail as we move through this passage. But before we turn to that outline, I want to just pause and consider the definition of what James is talking about here. He says, do not speak evil against one another. Do not speak evil against one another. This is a pretty broad uh, verb that he uses here, speaking evil against. He could have chosen more narrow verbs, slander, etc., that kind of pinpointed one specific sin of speech. He chooses a very broad one here, it seems like, because he wants to encompass all the sins of speech anytime where we speak evil against someone else. So I want to try and define this here. This is, to the best of my knowledge, how I would summarize what speaking evil against someone else is. Speaking evil about someone else includes words spoken publicly or whispered privately. It may be said directly to a person's face or spoken behind their back. It may be an outright lie, or it may be a truth that shouldn't be shared. This includes exaggerating someone's shortcomings or minimizing their good deeds. James picks this word because he wants to broaden the scope, widen the scope of the kind of language that he's targeting here. Brothers and sisters, we are all, we are all guilty of speaking evil at some point according to James's, uh, according to this definition here, which I think is faithful to what James is talking about here. Do not speak evil in any way against one another. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm loosely copying, kind of paraphrasing a list here uh, from several sources. One of them is from Thomas Manton, a Puritan. So let me just read this again because I think, it, I think it's really good. But I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, trying to pat myself on the back. It's, it's the work of others. So let me read it again. Speaking evil about someone else includes words spoken publicly or whispered privately. It may be said directly to a person's face or spoken behind their back. It might be an outright lie or it might be a partial truth, but something that shouldn't be spoken. It includes exaggerating someone's failures and also minimizing the good that you see in them. In this way, we should be careful not to speak evil. 
So let, let's jump in here to James's words. The first thing he says, uh, the reason he gives that we may not speak evil uh, against our fellow Christians is because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they are in Christ. It would be easy to miss this point, but as you read, it really is the first one that should jump out at you when we consider James's words. Christians should never slander anyone, but in particular, what he's speaking about here is don't slander one another among your brothers or sisters. This language of brothers or sisters, uh, we come across it pretty frequently in the New Testament. It's the way that church members speak about each other. Jesus died to create a new family. He died to create a community that's even more closely knit than your own biological family members. He's drawing us together. And so we're not supposed to speak against one another because we're like brothers and sisters in a new family, a family that's supposed to reflect Christ. This would contradict the message of mercy that God has sent us to proclaim. We're supposed to be like ambassadors, winning people to Christ, persuading them, come to Jesus because he can offer you mercy When we speak evil against one another, we would be contradicting that very message. But we we cannot condemn those who are in Christ because God has justified them. When you speak evil against a fellow Christian, you are passing judgment on someone whom God has forgiven. You're, You're bringing the opposite judgment to the one that God has brought for that person God has forgiven them. Who, who are you to condemn them? And this is, uh, in fact, exactly what Paul says in Romans 14. Paul, uh, in a slightly different situation, has a very similar warning. In Romans 14, some of you will remember this if you were here for the Romans series, uh, Paul's dealing with some sort of controversy in the church, a difference of opinions among the brothers and sisters there. Some people want to keep and observe certain holy days, probably the Sabbath, maybe certain other days. And some other people think, well, it doesn't matter. The Sabbath's been fulfilled in Christ. Some people want to eat certain foods, and other people think, ah, I'm not sure you can eat those foods. Aren't those unholy in some way? And they're judging each other in the church in Romans 14. There's this judgment passing back and forth between them. And Paul says in Romans 14, verse 4, to all the Christians... Whichever side of the controversy they stand on, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he, your fellow Christian, will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God's judgment is acquitted, forgiven, righteous. And when we speak evil against a brother or sister in Christ, what we're doing is we're condemning a righteous person. We're condemning someone who's already been acquitted by God. The promise of the gospel is that God has forgiven all those who are in Christ. All those who are in Christ by faith. They are reconciled to him. And you and I cannot condemn them when we speak evil evil against a brother or sister. We are speaking evil of one who is in Christ, arguing against God's justifying promise. We ought not do this. And one of the reasons we shouldn't do this is because this is Satan's work. This is the work of the enemy of our souls. 
Slander is the very definition of what our enemy does. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the passage in Revelation 12 where Satan is cast down and John writes about him, Satan, who is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He's called the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God. When we speak against a fellow Christian, it's as if we're joining the prosecution. You're standing on the wrong side of the courtroom against your brother or sister in Christ, and the one whom you stand with is your own enemy, all of our enemies, the one who would destroy us if he could. The work of Satan is always to remind of sins, to bring them up, to make them public, to use them to tear down the faith of Christians. But for those of us who are in Christ, the promise is there is no condemnation. No one can bring a charge that will stick against you. And so we ought not do that to one another. Do not condemn your brother or sister in Christ because this is the work of our enemy. And this is also the work of the world around us. That is, those who are not in Christ. Slander is, uh, is the very definition of what they do as well. In 1 Peter 2, he uses this same, this same verb here to speak about how non-Christians speak against Christians. This is just what we expect in the world around us. Sometimes we get the sense that our lives as Christians today are more difficult, like maybe people speak against us more frequently today than they ever have. You know, recent cultural shifts over the last generation or two might lead you to this conclusion. I don't know. People, uh, Christians in other areas of the world do suffer far more extremely than we do, and we're actually taught to expect this sort of persecution, this sort of slander from the world around us. But that's the work of the world, not the work of Christians. Jesus says, if you, uh, if you follow me, you're going to receive the same treatment that I do. That's that passage in John 15 there. He says, uh, it's natural for the world to hate you because it hated me first. I speak on behalf of my, of my father. And if you follow me, you also will be hated by the world. So I gave an example of uh, what happened in Romans 14 there, some sort of disagreement within the church, uh, differing opinions, differing interpretations on how certain foods should or should not be consumed, certain days should be followed. This happens still to, to in our own churches. Uh, perhaps uh, you've been in a situation like this. You don't see eye to eye with someone else in the church on what a faithful Christian engagement with the government looks like. Maybe you voted for the opposite candidate that your brother or sister did in the church. Isn't there a temptation there all the time to say, can you believe they voted Republican, Democrat, Green, Libertarian, whatever it is, how could that possibly be faithful to Christ? Here's the thing. Scripture does not give us an absolute on how you must vote. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Do not speak evil against the one for whom Christ died on these secondary issues. Different Christians will work out how they live out these commands in different ways. And we must be careful. Where Scripture speaks explicitly, we may speak explicitly. And where Scripture does not give us an absolute command, we cannot make one in its place. 
There are ways that you can engage your brothers and sisters in conversation, and you should, in a respectful and kind way. Be careful not to speak evil against a brother or sister. Talk, I love this quote from Amy Carmichael. She said, speak to people, not about them. That's good. Speak to people, not about them. If you have a concern with a brother or sister, go to them. But ask questions. Don't bring condemnation. Open the conversation. Don't shut it down. And so the first, the first reason that we see here that we cannot uh, bring judgment against a brother or sister is because we're condemning someone who's in Christ. They're in Christ, and we have no right to condemn them. Secondly, James says we may not speak evil against our brothers and sisters because this is actually like condemning God's law. It's like condemning God's law. James mentions law here, I think, because he's talking about judgment. Uh, all judgments have to be based on some uh, solid foundation, a standard from which everybody operates. And so the, op- the, the standard that we all have is God's law. God has spoken very clearly in the Old and New Testaments, most clearly in his Son. We have that written down for us, and we can use that uh, as our standard for judgment. But when we speak against a fellow Christian, what we're doing is not merely condemning that person, we're also condemning God's word, his, his law that's been given to us. We act as if we're above that standard. We take God's, God's words and we say, I think I can do better. <laughs> I think I see some imperfections here, some ways that I could state that a little bit more precisely. James says, when you judge a brother or sister, when you, when you speak evil against them, what you're doing is you're actually condemning God's word. This is a rejection of our rightful position. All of us stand in the exact same position to God's word, namely, underneath it. We're called to obey it. That is, we look, we look up to it, we, we stand underneath it as those who should say, this is what you've told us to do. But when we judge a brother or sister in Christ, when we speak evil against them, it's as if we put ourselves above God's law, we shove it out of the way, And we say, thank you, I'll do the work myself. I'll speak on God's behalf about this thing. And when we do that, we are putting ourselves in the place of the law as if we're above it. Calvin says, there is a disease innate in human nature. Every person would have all others live according to his own will or fancy. Isn't that the case? And so he he goes on, we confidently condemn whatever does not please us. Uh, We often say, mercy for my sins, justice for your weaknesses. This is the way of the world, and we should not follow it. It is a temptation. It is easy for us to excuse ourselves because, well, I know my own motives. I know what I really meant there. Sure, I probably could have done it a little better, but when I look at somebody else, we tend to judge their motives, but we can't do that. Only God's law can do that. We don't stand above God's law as if we get to do that work, we stand below it. The default setting of our human nature is judgment, but we have to learn to humble ourselves and stand under God's law. When we speak evil against someone else, it's like saying that God's word is insufficient, like we can do it better. Instead, because we are subjects to the law, we stand under the law, we should humbly receive his word. Uh, When we judge someone else, we take a position of pride. 
judging God's word, treating it uh, as if we can set our fellow Christians st- straight and we have no need of his word. Thank you. I can use that for devotional purposes. I don't need it in public. I can do fine myself. James says this is the wrong attitude. We ought to stand under God's law as fellow citizens who are obedient to it. But when we speak evil about others, we reverse our position, standing over it and judging it. The cure is a humble submission before God, a joyful embrace of his word, constant feeding on it, consuming it, taking it into us so that we begin to reflect the God who stands behind it, not merely in terms of judgment, but also in terms of mercy. We're going to get to his character here in just a moment, and we'll see that God is not first and foremost a judging God. He always puts the other part of his character forward first. So the cure for us is to humbly feed on God's word, to humbly receive it. This is what changes us from the inside out. When we submit to God's word, then we learn not to speak evil against others because we realize how much we have received in terms of mercy ourselves, how we stand underneath it. This is what led James to this point. In fact, if you just look at the verse right above where we started today, chapter 4, verse 10, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And this right here uh, teaches us that humility is not some kind of morose uh, characteristic, some, some attitude of just being beat down. Humility is, in fact, matched with exaltation from God. It should be a joyful humility. If you're truly receiving God's word, you'll be freed from criticism of others, and you'll be freed into a joyful humility. Don't discount humility. Uh, stand under God's word. Uh, we might see this sort of judging God's word, condemning God's word when we speak against others. For instance, in situations like um, a, a parent, excuse me, a child speaking against their parent. This happens sometimes, whether you're, you're young or whether you're all grown up and out of the house. It's easy to condemn your parents' ways. If you're younger, you might be frustrated about the restrictions they put on your free time. Uh, uh, expectations about curfew. Uh, you may be f- uh, uh, frustrated about what they allow you to do or not do. If you're older, uh, you've been out from under your parents' wings for a long time, but you may still disagree with certain aspects of them. You may look back in criticism of them. It's easy for us to be harsh, to speak against them uh, for some of their uh, uses, how, how they use their retirement how they spend their money. We must be careful not to judge our parents. All of us have parents. Nor to get angry at them, nor to speak evil about them, either to their faces or behind their backs. And similarly, and here's one that maybe hits a little closer to home, we should be careful not to judge other people's parenting. Uh, I was talking to a missionary recently, and they said one of the most common reasons that causes conflict between um, fellow workers on the same team on the mission field is differences in parenting. It is so easy for us to look across at other people's families and judge what they do. But this is, this is one where there's a lot of latitude in Scripture. Parents are told 
certainly, to raise their children in faith in Christ. Full stop. No questions asked. That's an absolute. However, when it comes to how and when you discipline, when it comes to expectations about what you give to their children versus what must be earned, decisions about curfews, decisions about schooling, there's one that's easy to to judge others on. We must, we must abstain from speaking evil against others. Good brothers and sisters in Christ will come to totally different conclusions where scripture does not absolutely give a command. And we must be careful to speak to people, not about them. And when we speak to them, to do so with gentleness, with the love that matches our gospel promises. Where scripture does not speak, we cannot speak. You and I can't invent commands, nor can we silence scripture where it does speak. In those places, we are called to follow it. And where it is silent, we too must be silent. We stand underneath it. We must receive it with humility. Uh, It reminds me in some ways of uh, the coastline and a lighthouse. The coastline, when you're at the coast, land meets sea, is set in place. There are hard boundaries that you can't change. And a lighthouse is put in place at, at the edge of, the, uh, of land in order to shine the light for people thus far and no further. A lighthouse marks a hard boundary set in place, not by the lighthouse keeper, but by the creator of, of the world, the creator of coasts and land. Uh, we should be like lighthouses. We can mark those hard boundaries where God's word speaks, but we shouldn't be like so many nation states that argue over international waters, (laughs) those places where the boundaries are not fixed. Our job is to speak God's word. We don't stand above it. We don't get to recreate it. We don't get to uh, put in place our own thoughts or opinions. We may speak God's word, and there there we stop. And finally, so that's the second reason here, We, when we... When we speak evil of a brother or sister, it's like we're condemning God's word. And finally, James says, don't speak evil against your fellow brothers and sisters because only God is a worthy judge. Only God is a worthy judge. He begins by calling him in verse 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Only one lawgiver and judge. Uh, he uses this phrase, lawgiver, sort of a rare word. He's, uh, he is the source of the law. Again, James is just reminding us, you stand of our position of humility, you stand underneath the law, but God is the source of the law. He created it. It actually reflects his character. He calls good what is good, and he calls evil what is evil. He has created those distinctions and justice comes from him alone because only he is without sin. Only he can stand above the whole situation and from a position of omniscience say, this is what is right and good. He is the very definition of justice, goodness, holiness. And then James tells us as well, look at this phrase halfway through verse 12 there. He says that, Uh, This judge is he who is able to save and to destroy. This is interesting. God is a judge who does not merely condemn. He also rescues. 
That's just not the way of human judges. <laughs> when you take someone to court, you're, you are looking for a condemnation. Hey, we're, we, want, uh, we want a sentence here. Can you decide in our favor, please? Human judgment tends to be negative, critical, punitive. Not so with God's judgment. It's not merely con- condemning. God's law, in fact, if you look back through the, the broad sweep of Scripture, God's law always comes in the context of grace. From the very beginning, God didn't speak to Adam to tell him not to eat from the tree until he'd already given him everything. <laughs> he created him, put him in the garden, and then he gives him law. So also with the people of Israel, they're saved, rescued out of Egypt, and only then do they meet God on Mount Sinai. The law is, is not meant just to be uh, uh, the way that we come to God. We receive law only in the context of grace. So also with our New Testament. These writings come to us only on the other side of the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Law always comes in the context of grace from the lawgiver, the one true and worthy judge. When we compare this with human judgment, we see how different our ways are from God's. Psalm 19.7, I always love this passage, teaches uh, that the psalmist says he loves God's law because it revives his soul. The, the, the law of the Lord is reviving to the soul. This is interesting because I think this is not how we tend to think of law. When we hear law, we think commands, restrictions, thou shalt not. But the law is meant to structure our lives in the promised land, if you will. And this is why it's so significant, brothers and sisters, that we come to Christ by faith. If you're not a Christian here and you've never heard this before, the, the good news, we call it the gospel, is this. All of us, including you, are sinners. We've failed God in many ways. We've been careless with, with what he wants to do. We've gone our own way. And yet, God has given a sacrifice for us. He said, I'm going to condemn someone in your place. And so he sends his son, Jesus. Jesus willingly took the punishment for us in order to give us his forgiveness, to bring us back to God. And we come to God not because we're so good, not because we've tried hard enough, not even because we do these sort of things. Hey, I didn't speak evil against someone else, therefore I can get into the kingdom of heaven. No. We receive God's forgiveness, and we're reconciled to him. He brings us into his family. He adopts us only because of what Jesus has done. We call it being saved by faith alone. God grants us this as a gift, not because we've worked so hard. And only after that do we receive these sort of instructions. They come to us like all of you have if you've grown up in a good family. A good parent will give their children good instructions. Don't put your hand on the burner. Don't touch the fireplace because it's hot. You will burn yourself, and I want to save you from that pain. So also God gives us a set of good instructions to order family life. Because we're brothers and sisters now. He's creating a new and better community, unlike any that we've experienced before. So, God alone is a worthy judge. His character is very different. I love Micah seven eighteen. At the end of this whole book of prophecy, God's calling his people back, Micah seven eighteen. If you can forward to that slide there, Chris. Uh, God 
is he's had a number of critical words for the people of Israel. They've wandered from him, but this is sort of the capstone of the book. He's describing his own character. Micah's describing God's character, and he said, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God delights in mercy. He does hand out justice when it's necessary, and usually after a great deal of patience. But he delights in mercy. He delights in steadfast love. That's the heart of his character. Who is a God like him? And James asks a very similar question here. In fact, he says, by comparison, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Uh, I think oftentimes when we feel judged, we use this same sort of language. This is right at the end of, of verse 12, the very closing line there. After James says, you know, God's, he's worthy. He's the lawgiver. He's the sort of judge who not only condemns but also rescues. And then he says, and who are you to judge your neighbor? When we use this phrase oftentimes, who are you to judge me? We are doing it in self-defense. We're usually doing it from a position of perceived righteousness. I'm not so bad and you're not so good. I don't think that's what James is after here. His question comes from a position of humility. We saw that before. And so the point that he's making here, when he says, who are you to judge your neighbor, that word neighbor, it's uh, sometimes used as an adverb just to mean nearby. It's the person right next to you. Uh, who are you to judge your peer, someone who is your equal? The reminder, what James wants to remind us of is we all stand as equals before God, under his law, before the righteous and merciful judge. He's not, he doesn't mean this as an insult. Who are you to judge? He means this to be a soul-searching question. Ask yourself, how do you compare to the lawgiver? We're not meant to compare ourselves merely to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to compare ourselves upward. There is one worthy judge. He's the one who you want to receive justice from. Who are you to judge fellow human. Every honest assessment of this question, I think, should lead to the same outcome. Namely, we should say, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy to take that position. I have no right to stand in judgment. But there is one who hands out commandments. He is God, and not just God, but God incarnate. Jesus says that the Father entrusted judgment to him. And so, uh, and so he is the one uh, who is worthy of judging. But who are we to judge? Now, I'm just briefly, as we close here, there's a question I know that probably some of you have, it's been troubling some of you. So where does this leave us with regard to when we do have to correct a fellow Christian? When we see someone wandering into sin, someone's done something egregious, public and obvious, uh, and it does need to be confronted well, that's a good question, and let me just give this, this qualification. We may speak God's word. We may speak God's law, not our own thoughts, and we do so gently, remembering that we also are subject to temptation. We are fellow sinners underneath the law. We are neighbors to every other. And so when we, when we do have to speak to someone else, when God's word speaks clearly, and we've seen them continue in a pattern of sin. 
We speak as one who's equally susceptible to temptation. And we speak as one who uses God's law. Again, not our own opinions. It should be clearly stated in God's word. And when we have that foundation, then we can go to a brother or sister. But we do so always with gentleness. Again, I skip over to Paul here in Galatians 6.1. You can flip there if you have it. Paul's speaking to a church that's deeply troubled. Uh, this is the one letter that he begins. This is the only letter of Paul's that he begins without some sort of congratulatory statement of his love for them. I'm so thankful for God's love. Y'all are doing great. Sure, you've got some, you know, pretty glaring issues, uh, but I'm thankful to God for you. Not so in Galatians. He's troubled. And he writes to this church, and after correcting them, then he gives this statement of how correction should be done because there's going to be turmoil in the church, he knows. He says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, is Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do so when you must for correction. Did you notice that? The point is restoration, not, not condemnation, we're seeking restoration of our brothers and sisters. If you can go to a brother or sister for the purpose of restoration in a spirit of gentleness, remembering that you too are subject to sin, you also are a tempted being, and you yourself have, ha- have uh, fallen into sin and might fall into this same thing given the right situation, then you can speak to a brother or sister. You can speak God's word to them in that case. Even the Old Testament prophets whom we sometimes think of as kind of thundering from the pulpit, (laughs) uh, are often described throughout the whole Old Testament as mourning on behalf of God's people. When they correct the sins of the people, they they almost always do so uh, with visible weeping. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, for instance. Our attitude should reflect that same one when the time comes to correct a brother or sister. Let me end here. Fundamentally, James's command is don't speak evil against a brother or sister, but this is deeper than just words. Jesus said, if you make the tree good, then the fruit also will be good, and every tree will be known by its fruit. If you find yourself speaking evil against others, condemning them in your words, the problem is your nature. Jesus said, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if you want to change your words, You have to change your heart. The way we change our heart is only through Christ. We have to have an encounter with the resurrected one. We meet him in the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And as we're entering Holy Week here, uh, the Passion Week, there's hardly a better place than to see Jesus on the cross with the thief beside him saying, Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because I know you're the Messiah. And Jesus' response is, today you'll be with me in paradise until we feel ourselves to have been under the stroke of condemnation. Until we know that we ourselves are the ones who should be cursed, condemned, judged. And then we realize the rescue of God, that you have been adopted as a son or daughter, brought in as an inheritor, made a brother and sister in the family of Christ, only then can you begin to change 
Can your words change as your heart is renewed in the good promises of God for you, brother, sister, forgiven one? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we long to know you like this. We long for you to purify our words so that we would speak in a manner that is life-giving. We remember that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who thirst, that he promised to give life to everyone who came to him. We remember that his words do give life. They give eternal life. And so we long to speak those same words, to have our hearts full of your promises of rescue through Jesus so that then we too could bear good fruit, that we can speak good words, not speak evil against, but in humility, stand under your law and respond as those who are joyful for all that we've received. Father, we, we pray for this help and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Amen.